Well, if you want to open your Bibles to the book of Galatians, I know when you think of Christmas, it's the first book you think of, right? You think I'm going to crack open the book of Galatians and read it to the kids uh, over Christmas. Uh, Well, our our sermon text today is Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. We're going to focus on verses 4 through 5, uh, but we'll read the whole passage there for the sake of, of context. And I'll ask, as is our custom, that you stand for the reading of God's word if you're able to do so. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This ends the reading of our Word, you may be seated. <clears throat> the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Well, I kind of already hinted at it. You know, you might think of Galatians 4 as kind of an odd choice for a Christmas uh, time themed text. But if you, I, I trust as I was reading it and as you were looking at it, you see that it, it does have a lot to say to us about the birth of of our Savior. It's not a birth narrative. It doesn't tell the story, but it does tell the significance uh, behind it. We're going to spend most of our time in verses 4 through 5 to see what Paul has to say here in the scriptures about the significance of and the meaning of Christ's birth. Here I think Paul wants to have us understand just how significant and how historic the birth of Christ really is. In verses 4 to 5 there in our text, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, what did God do? God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So to call, we almost struggle to find the right words, you know, to call Christ's birth a historic uh, a thing would be a, a, a pretty vast understatement. Historic doesn't even do it, doesn't do it justice, but the birth of that baby in the stable in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago, um, if you think about it, it, it didn't seem like a big deal at all at the time to the people, to most of the people in, in the area and in the world. And, you know, really, it, it almost went completely unnoticed. If you can imagine such a historic, a momentous event happening in the birth of of Christ, almost no one even knew about it. Almost no one was there to see it. You know, if you think about it some more, if it weren't for divine intervention, nobody would have known about it. Mary and Joseph would have been there by themselves in the stable, and that would have been it. You know, the magi, or the wise men, the three wise men, we like to call them, how did they find out about it? How did they find where he was? God sent a star, a star, Matthew 2, verses 2 and 9. It says it twice. A star led them to the place 
where he lay. What about the shepherds in Luke chapter 2? An angel of the Lord, no less, was sent to tell them to announce to those shepherds the birth of the Savior. They called it the good tidings of what? Of great joy of the Savior's birth. If it wasn't for God sending a star and God sending his angel, maybe no one on earth would have been there to see it at all. It would have gone without any notice or fanfare at all. Now, if people there had had a clue, any clue at all how big of a deal the baby Jesus was, they would have not only found a room for Joseph and Mary at the inn, I'm sure there would have been lines of people giving up their, their spots, but somebody probably would have made room for him in a palace. And even that wouldn't have done it justice. It would have fallen far short of the glory and praise that that baby, the king, in that manger deserved. Luke 2:13 to 14 tells us that with that angel that talked to the shepherds there was quote a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. You know, it, when he says their heavenly host it's a military term. I, I can't I can't think of an analogy but all I can think of is if you've ever been to a, a military uh, parade ground, maybe a, the Marine Corps parade ground uh, at MCRD or something, and you've heard Marines marching you know, in, in formation, you know, shouting out the cadence and things as they're marching, it doesn't do it justice. But that's more, it's more of a military thing than it was uh, you know, a choir of fat babies with wings singing. It, was, it was, would have been a very impressive sight for, for those shepherds uh, to to see and to hear those angels themselves. And if you think about what they really are, they're being so powerful and so glorious, even one of them, that you and I might be tempted to fall down and worship them if we were to have seen them. You know, in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John does it twice. Two times in the book of Revelation, an angel has to say, no, 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 you know, I'm paraphrasing. I'm, I'm just a servant like you. I'm sure John might have been thinking, you're a servant, but you're not like me, <laughs> you know. Um, but they, that's, that's who was there to shout out and to sing the praise and the glory that that birth of our Savior really deserved. He, he got the choir that was, that was uh, even remotely adequate. Uh, so it didn't go unnoticed, but it was only by God's grace and intervention that it didn't. You know, I, I'm one of those uh, people, maybe you are too, that likes the old classic Christmas hymns. I'm almost disappointed if we don't sing them. Now I get to be a part of picking them, so I get to have a little bit of say-so in that. You know, as far as, as far as I'm concerned, there's not enough Sundays in December to sing enough of them. Uh, maybe we could sing a few of them in July. There's no reason we can't sing them in some other month, too. You'd probably look at me funny if we did. But, um, and we just sang a little while ago, Silent Night, one of the most familiar uh, Christmas hymns. Uh, and that, that hymn about the Savior and his birth has some, if you, if you were listening to the words and reading along as you were singing, it has some wonderfully rich theology about our Savior, doesn't it? The best Christmas hymns, the best hymns, period, do. You know, that's one of the things about the songs that we sing is they should have biblical content. And if they don't, we shouldn't sing them. We should only sing what has uh, scriptural content to them. Well, there in the fourth verse of that, of that hymn, Silent Night, this is what we sang. Silent night, I won't sing it. Uh, Silent night, holy night, son of God, love's pure light. The incarnation, right? 
radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace, Jesus Lord at thy birth, Jesus Lord at thy birth. That, that's what our text is about in, in a lot of ways. The, 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 the dawn of redeeming grace. That's what the birth of that baby in, in Bethlehem in that stable is all about. That's what the Apostle Paul is telling us about here in our, in our text. And there's a lot we can get from these two verses. I won't belabor, uh, I won't drag it out too much for all kinds of different points, but we're going to see at least three things. Always three things, right? At least three things from, from our text about what the incarnation and birth of Christ marked for us. The first thing it marks for us, it's the pinnacle of history. The birth of Jesus Christ marked the pinnacle of history. Secondly, it marked the pinnacle of God's revelation to mankind. Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of God's revelation of himself to a sinful mankind. And third, the birth of the Messiah, the birth of Christ, marked the pinnacle of God's work of redemption for sinful mankind. So it's the, it marked the pinnacle of history. It marked the pinnacle of God's revelation to us. And it marked the pinnacle of God's work of redemption for sinful mankind as well. So the first thing we see is that the birth of Christ marked the pinnacle of history. It marked the, the, the beginning of something so momentous that it would be impossible to overstate its importance. All of history, in, in a sense, was letting, leading up to and pointing to this one thing, this one person, Jesus Christ. You know, it's not without reason that we, at least we still do for the most part in our day, we mark history how? We mark, mark it by before and after the coming of Christ. B.C., before Christ. Everything before him is marked by those two letters. A.D., you might not know what A.D. stands for. It does not stand for after death. I used to think that's what it stood for. So we'd have 33 years or whatever of zero time or something. No, it's, it's, it's Latin. It's Anno Domini. It's the year of the Lord, or sometimes we say the year of our Lord. It's marked, what's the starting point? The birth of Christ, when God in the fullness of time sent forth his Son. In verse 4, Paul there tells us, he says, The Lord Jesus was born, quote, when the fullness of time has come, had come. Now, when he says the fullness of time, uh, I don't think he's so much saying that it, the timing was just right. That's sometimes that's how we kind of think of it. You know, we, we sometimes talk about, uh, you know, the circumstances, not that they are important, but the circumstances of the time. You know, you had the Roman system of roads, as important as that was, that it enabled the gospel to spread Quickly, uh, it certainly did do that. Uh, the Greek language, thanks to uh, some, some other things in history, some battles and things that, that had spread the Greek language throughout the known world, it enabled certainly the gospel to go out more quickly. You know, if you want to use that logic, though, why didn't Jesus wait for the Internet? Why didn't, why didn't God wait a couple more thousand years? Uh, we'd all be seeing about it on our smartphones. The star would be, you know, you'd be GPS locating it or something. Um, well, I don't think that's the point. The point is, the fullness of time means that God's foreordained, chosen time had come to pass. God in his infinite wisdom and grace had picked the time. And it's only the right time because God had picked it for it to come to pass. You know, our text 
here at least, doesn't really have any emphasis on the idea of perfect timing. Our text says that it's God's predetermined timing according to the counsel of his will from all eternity. In the fullness of time, in the time that God had chosen, that's when it took place. Leon Morris, a New Testament scholar, writes this, At the major point of human history, God took action. Paul sees the coming of Jesus into this world as the high point. So he didn't come, you know, because it was a major point in history. It's the, it's the opposite of that. It's a major point in history because he came. That's why it's a major point in history. In 1 Corinthians 10.11, the Apostle Paul says this. He tells us that, quote, the end of the ages has come upon us. The end of the ages in other words, all of those previous ages and eras in biblical history, what, what were they for? What were they doing? They were leading up to and preparing us, preparing the world for the coming of Christ. There's, there's no more next thing to come except for his return. His coming wasn't preparatory anymore. Everything before it pointed forward to him. Your whole Old Testament... If you read your Old Testament, as we'll see in a little bit, if you read your Old Testament with an eye to where it points us to Christ, you'll see that that's what it's all about. In some way, shape, or form, all of the Old Testament prepared God's people for the birth of Christ. The gospel age that you and I are living in is the last age, quote-unquote, until Christ comes again with glory to judge the living and the dead, as the Nicene Creed tells us. That's why the Bible in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2 tells us that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Hebrews chapter 9, it's always a good book to read if you want to understand how the Old Testament points to Christ. Hebrews 9 verses 24 to 28 says, this, says it this way, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, the temple, the tabernacle, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not of his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, when? At the end of the ages... As it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. Why? To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You know, if you think about it, the writer of, of Hebrews there, the book of Hebrews, in, in one short little paragraph gives you and I a, a, a summary, a brief summary of the whole scope of redemptive history. In that one little passage, he gives us the, a, a thumbnail sketch of all of redemptive history. Here's what those Old Testament things pointed forward to, and here's what Christ has done to fulfill them. Everything from the sacrificial system in the Old Testament to the birth, death, and resurrection and ascension of Christ all the way to his return in glory. 
Christ appeared, what does it say there? Once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once. Once for all at the end of the ages. He himself is the, is the point. He's the focal point, the pinnacle of it. So Christ himself is the focus. He's the focal point, the pinnacle of all of human history. And the reason he came was for one basic thing. To put away or take away our sins by taking them upon himself on the cross. It was appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. He died once in our place. And so I have to ask, are are your sins put away by Christ? He died for the sins of many, it says. Are your sins put away? Are they taken away by Christ as he suffered your payment for your sins on his cross? Are you trusting in him for salvation? And that brings us to the second, the second thing our text tells us about the incarnation and birth of Christ. It's not just a pinnacle of, of history or, the, or marking the pinnacle of God's work in history, but it's also the pinnacle of his revelation to mankind as well. Look at what Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews says in chapter 1, the very first verses of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, there it is again, in these last days, he has spoken to us, how? By his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. who's, Who's upholding the universe by the word of his power? Jesus is. The cosmic king of kings and lord of lords. He's not some small g, uh, you know, little god of the Jehovah's Witnesses. He's not kind of God. He's not almost God. He's the son of God incarnate. Right now, reigning and ruling over all things at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He upholds the universe. And yet here we see every Christmas he came and was born of Mary and was laid in a, in a manger for a crib. These last days that we are living in, God spoke his final word. There's no next word to come. There's no next thing. Christ is the last thing. He's he's God's last word to sinful mankind. He's the ultimate, Hebrews 1 says, basically, he's the ultimate revelation of God, of a holy God, of himself to sinful mankind. He is the ultimate revelation of God. You know, there's a a principle or an idea that we call progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. What that means is basically, it's how you look at the Bible from start to finish. God didn't tell us the whole story all at once. He didn't tell us everything there was to tell us in Genesis 1 or 2 or 3 or even 4. The story of God's work of redemption in history, what did it do? It slow, very slowly unfolded over, over time, starting in the book of Genesis. The Savior didn't come right after Adam ate the forbidden fruit in Genesis chapter 3. The whole 
picture of the gospel wasn't even all spelled out in Genesis chapter 4. In other words, a whole lot of things took place between Genesis 3 and Matthew 1. And all of those things were to prepare us for what was to come. God's promises are slowly in the Bible being unfolded and expanded for our view in all those chapters between Genesis and the book of Matthew at the start of the New Testament. Now, when I say that the gospel didn't, you know, wasn't all in every detail given to us in, this, in the book of Genesis, doesn't mean that the story changes, uh, or even less so that there's a, like somehow it's a different story. All of the same things are present in Genesis. They're just more spelled out in detail as you go on throughout Scripture. We have one Bible, not two. We have one Bible, one book from God with two, we call them testaments. And that, that one Bible is a unity. It tells one unifying story. And what's that story? The glory of God and his plan of redemption for his people in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the point of the entire Bible, starting with Genesis all the way to Revelation at the end of the book. Uh, Herman Bovink, some of you might know who that is, Dutch theologian. He says this, in principle... Genesis 3 contains the entire history of humankind. In principle, Genesis 3 contains the entire history of humankind, all the ways of God for the salvation of the lost and the victory over sin. In substance, not in detail, in substance, the whole gospel, the entire covenant of grace, is present here. All that follows is the development of what has been germinally Germinally, like a seed, planted here. The substance of the gospel is in Genesis chapter 3. It's all through it. The gospel is in Genesis chapter 3. We just know more of the details now. We know what those things meant more clearly now because of God's revelation in his Son and in the New Testament. That's why Luke 24, 27 there Jesus could explain to his disciples on the Emmaus Road how all the scriptures were about what? About whom? About him. About himself. That's why Jesus could tell the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 39, that the Old Testament scriptures bore witness to him. And yet they refused to come to him to have life. He tells the same people again in verse 46 of John 5 that Moses was writing about who? Whom? Jesus himself. He says, if you believed Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and they certainly claim to believe in Moses, the law of Moses, if you believed what Moses said, you'd be believing in what? Me, for he wrote about me. Those aren't words that a prophet would ever say of himself, a mere prophet would ever say of himself, is it? are they? Those aren't words that an apostle would ever dare to say about himself. Jesus is far greater than any apostle or prophet. He's the ultimate prophet, but he's no mere prophet. He says, Moses, maybe the greatest of all prophets, guess what he was trying to tell you about? Me. Jesus is the point and the pinnacle of revelation. Listen to the words of Charles Hodge. It's a lengthy quote, but I... I, couldn't find a way to reduce it without reducing what he says. Bear with me with the quote. Charles Hodge, he says, Our Lord commanded the Jews, as we just saw, to search their scriptures because they testified of him. 
He said that Moses and the prophets wrote of him. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to the disciples in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The apostles, when they began to preach the gospel, not only everywhere proved from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, but they referred to them continually in support of everything which they taught concerning his person and work. It is from the Old Testament they prove his divinity, his incarnation, the sacrificial nature of his death, and that he was truly a priest to make reconciliation for the people, as well as a prophet and a king, and that he was to die and to rise again on the third day, to ascend into heaven and to be invested with absolute authority over all the earth and over all orders of created beings. Here it is. There is not a doctrine concerning Christ taught in the New Testament which the apostles do not affirm to have have been revealed under former dispensations. I know that's a big quote. There is not a doctrine concerning Christ taught in the New Testament which the apostles do not affirm to have been revealed under former dispensations in the Old Testament, in other words. They therefore distinctly assert that it was through him and the efficacy of his death that men were saved before as well as after his advent. Everything about Christ that we know in the New Testament is also taught where? In the Old Testament. And how do you know that? What is Hodge saying? Look what the apostles quote from. Constantly. The Old Testament. When they want to prove his divinity, where do they go? Where do they have to go? The Old Testament. They're not teaching some radically new thing that was unforeseen, unforetold, unprophesied, and untold in Scripture. They're showing the fullness of it. They're not inventing it. The entire Bible is about Jesus Christ and all that he is and all that he did for our salvation. God sending forth his Son in the fullness of time was the pinnacle of his revelation of himself to sinners like you and like me. I don't know if you ever think about this. Maybe you do. Think about the immense privilege that you and I have to live in this day. I'm not talking about the Internet and all that nonsense. We have the full Bible. We have God's canon of Scripture given to us. We know we're not waiting for the next thing in God's revelation to tell us something else. We have... His Son, God has spoken in these last days to us by His Son. We have the complete canon of Scripture. We have the entire story of the Gospel laid out for us in His Word from front to back. We are able to understand our Old Testament because of what the New Testament tells us. And we are able to better understand the New Testament because we have the Old Testament along with it. The last thing we see in our text is that the coming of Christ also marked the pinnacle of God's work of redemption. All these things go together. They're not separate. Uh, As we read in that Hebrews passage a little while ago, all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament, what were they meant to point us forward to? The one time, once for all, sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. the, The temple, the tabernacle, the Old Testament sacrificial system, all of it, was never an end in and of itself. It was meant to point to one thing, to one person, Christ himself. In verse 5 of our text, 
in, in Galatians 4, Paul tells us why God, quote, sent forth his son. And what was it? Why did God send forth his son in the fullness of time? Paul says it was, quote, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's about redemption. The coming of Christ is about redemption. It was about the redemption of sinners like you and like me. That's what Christmas, this time of year that we celebrate the birth of Christ, that's really what it's all about. The birth of Jesus Christ is good news of great joy, Luke 2.10, precisely because it was the birth of the Savior, the Redeemer of sinners. And what does that mean? That means that you, you cannot possibly rightly understand the manger apart from the cross. You can't do it. You can't separate them. The only reason it was good news of great joy is because he came to, to die in the place of his people, in the place of, of sinners like you and like me. God sent forth his son, verse 4, to redeem sinners, to pay the price of our sins. What's the price of our sins? What does Romans 6.23 say? The wages of sin is what? Death. Thankfully, Romans 6.23 doesn't stop there, does it? It says, but the, the free gift of God, free to us, not to him. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's the result of God sending forth his son to redeem, to redeem us? Verse 5 again, it says, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We could spend the next year on that one phrase. I won't, but uh, we might receive adoption as sons. Sinners who deserve nothing but death and the just judgment of a holy God for our sins. What do we receive in its place? Through Christ and Christ alone. Not just forgiveness, although we certainly do receive forgiveness. God goes far further than that, doesn't he? Adoption as sons. Forgiveness would be enough. If, if God were to send Christ and the only thing he gave us because of that was forgiveness. You know, a lack of hell. I'll forgive you, you won't go to hell for your sins. We're good. That would have been more than enough. That would still be good news of great joy. But he goes so far beyond we can't even fathom it. He sends his son so that we might be adopted as his sons, as sons of God. So I ask this morning, as we often do, have you come to Christ by faith? Have you turned from your sin and turned to Christ by faith for salvation? Do you know the real joy of Christmas, of the gospel story, the true peace and joy that only come through having all of your sins freely forgiven and having the gift of the Holy Spirit, who our text tells us is what? And Romans 8 says it as well. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of adoption. Both Romans 8 and our text say that it's by the Holy Spirit that we cry out what? To God. We call God Abba, Father. That's why Jesus came in the fullness of time. That sinners might be made sons. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel that we can't even... We never could have imagined a gospel like this. We never would have invented a gospel like this. We would have invented a gospel where we save ourselves by what we do. Where we could save ourselves by making up for our sins. Where we could save ourselves by, by doing something, by pulling ourselves up from our cosmic bootstraps. 
And yet you sent your son to die in our place, the death that we deserve. That he lived the life, the perfect life, the sinless life that we failed to live in every way. That we might be made right with you. That we might be forgiven because of his death on the cross where you forsook your son so that you wouldn't have to forsake sinners like us. That you have given us his righteousness because we don't have any righteousness of our own with which to stand before a holy God. And we thank you that you go so far above and beyond in giving your son for our salvation that you even, you even go so far as to adopt us as your children in Christ by faith. We thank you for this message. We thank you for your word. We thank you for sending your son as the pinnacle of history, the pinnacle of your revelation to a sinful mankind, and as the pinnacle of our redemption uh, that's only found in Christ. We ask that if anybody here does not yet know you through faith in him, that you might even make today the day where they, you open their eyes, that they might look to Christ and live and have life and forgiveness in his name, that they might rejoice maybe even for the first time, at the true meaning of the Christmas season. For it's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.